0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the possibility of peace talks between Ukraine's President Zelensky and the Russians on the Belarus border, which could indicate that the war is not going well for Putin, although he has only deployed half of his military forces into Ukraine. Joining us for an assessment of the military situation and the prospects for diplomacy is Colonel Alexander Vindman, who was most recently the Director for European Affairs on the White House's National Security Council. Prior to retiring from the U.S. Army, he served as a foreign area officer with assignments in U.S. embassies in Kiev, Ukraine and Moscow, Russia for the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff as a political military affairs officer. He is the author of the new book, Here, Write Matters, an American Story, and we will discuss his article at The Atlantic. America could have done much more to protect Ukraine. The paths to deterrence were not taken. And what can be done to help Ukraine in its fight for democracy against criminality and dictatorship. Then we'll look into how the fact that Russia has gone to full nuclear alert makes it clear, as Biden has reiterated, that the U.S. does not want to go to war with Russia over Ukraine. But at the same time, the U.S. does not want Russia to go unpunished. Joining us is Keith Darden, a professor in the School of International Service at American University, where his research focuses on nationalism, state building, and the politics of Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. His forthcoming book is Resisting Occupation in Eurasia. Then finally, we'll speak with Charles Kupchan, who was Director for European Affairs on the National Security Council during the Clinton administration. He's now a Professor of International Affairs in Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and spent the last three years of the Obama administration as Special Assistant to President Obama for National Security A senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's the author of Power in Transition, The Peaceful Change of International Order, and How Enemies Become Friends, The Sources of Stable Peace, and his latest, Isolationism, A History of America's Effort to Shield Itself from the World. He joins us to discuss what he is hearing from colleagues in Russia and how the Tsar in the Kremlin's brutal miscalculation could be the beginning of the end for Putin. And before we go to our first guest, since we are now fully independent your support for this program is vital to keep us online and on a growing number of radio stations across the country and while we operate on a low budget we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org/donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org to help ensure that background briefing is sustainable into the future so that we can continue to provide a daily news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests both at home and abroad. And for those listeners who have issues with PayPal, we now have made it easier to donate simply by credit card. So if you are in a position to give support or have been meaning to but have been unable, please go to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vidman, who was most recently the Director for European Affairs on the White House's National Security Council. Prior to retiring from the U.S. Army, he served as a Foreign Area Officer with assignments in U.S. embassies in Kyiv, Ukraine and Moscow, Russia, and for the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff as a political military affairs officer. And he's currently a doctoral student and foreign policy institute fellow at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, a Pritzker Military Fellow at the Lawfare Institute, and a board member for the Renew Democracy Initiative nonprofit, and a visiting fellow at the University of Pennsylvania's Perry World House. And he's the author of the new book, Here, Right Matters, an American Story, and he has an article at the Atlantic. America could have done much more to protect Ukraine. The paths to deterrence were not taken. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vinman.
1: That sounds. That guy sounds very busy, Ian.
0: <laughs> well, you you earned it all. So, let's talk about the latest news. Of, that Ukraine's leader Zelensky has said that they've agreed to meet with Russian negotiators on the borders with Belarus. And what do you make of that?
1: Uh, I think, frankly, uh, that's always a good development, that parties are starting to seek negotiated solutions. I think what's interesting is that Vladimir Putin was completely disinterested in this idea. He was going to impose his will through force a couple of days ago. And after he had achieved his military objectives, he would turn to some sort of um, diplomacy, but one in which Ukraine capitulates. His he's been his forces have not achieved their military objectives. The prospects of uh, achieving those military objectives have diminished, even though Russia has overwhelming military force. And now he's uh, uh, open to negotiation. For Zelensky's side, I think this is it will be. He also wants to kind of end this war because war is unpredictable. You don't know how it's going to turn. It's only been three days or so. Uh, but the question is whether they could reach any um, legitimate accommodation. And the other thing, as crazy and far-fetched as it sounds, Zelensky just needs to be careful. The Russians think differently about war. And they think differently about assassination. And there's a you know, legitimate pro- possibility, and the Ukrainians know this, that the Russians will either kill or capture him. Which is a, a, an absolutely astonishing thing to say. But it's, it's the nature of war. It's the nature of Russia. Uh, when it fights wars, that, you know, there were really no rules.
0: Well, that happened in 1956 with the Hungarians. I uh, spoke years ago to Arthur Macy Cox, who was a CIA station chief in Hungary at the time, negotiating directly with Andropov, who later became the general secretary of the Communist Party. And they had ne- negotiated, essentially giving up Hungary to the reformists and then, unfortunately, the British and the French and the Israelis attacked Suez, and that took Hungary off the headlines and they then, instead of the very people that the Russians had negotiated or the Soviets had negotiated with, they executed them all
1: yeah it's it's exactly right. I think that's it, history is is a very good indicator of um Russian actions or actions in general frankly i'm I'm a historian. Uh, and I think right now we're starting to see the outlines of what what I was most concerned about with regards to this warfare in Ukraine, both on the tactical level with the destruction of populated areas and Russia targeting, increasingly targeting infrastructure like they did in so many other places, schools, hospitals, uh, churches. But also at the strategic level, there was the the bar for nuclear saber rattling is is very, very low. It's frankly part of... It was part of Soviet doctrine. It was part of uh, Cold War brinksmanship. And Vladimir Putin, who's a cold warrior, understood it. We just happened to forget it. And this is why I was deeply concerned about not doing enough to stop this. That's why we should have done more to stop this because it was about a wishful thinking to think that this was going to be a limited war.
0: Well, uh, Putin has put the... Russian nuclear forces on full alert. I mean one of the problems and I don't think m- many people get their heads around this is that we have in geopolitics we have never had before the combination of organized crime and national security nuclear weapons and the mafia. I mean that's what we have and yep. it's an amazingly difficult thing to deal with. Do you think that that the West really understands what they're dealing with? With this, because all Putin offers is gangster government, like oh. Lukashenko in Belarus is the model, and that's what he would like to install in uh, Ukraine. This is oh. what it's all about. And the Ukrainians have experienced democracy. And do you think the American people realize that Ukrainians are fighting and dying for democracy? And here at home, we're letting democracy slip through our fingers.
1: I, I don't think so. <coughs> It's interesting that uh, we thought we could just you know, sit this one out. The Ukrainians are fighting this one on their own. There are other actions being taken in, let's say, in the economic sphere. But it, we're not a belligerent here, and yet there is nuclear saber-rattling. What we need to do is, frankly, we need to relearn old lessons, lessons that we've forgotten about how we conducted ourselves with other nuclear belligerents, most notably the Soviet Union. We were continuously engaged in a Cold War with them through proxies. The ground rule was just no overt, no direct contact. Covert operations were fine. Fighting through proxies were fine. There were numerous examples of Korea where they, they were the pilots knocking out our planes and attacking our, our, our forces. Vietnam where they were knocking out our planes with air defense. Uh, Grenada, for us, it was Afghanistan. We, this, is, this is something that we certainly have forgotten how to, how to fight like this. But we're back in this world. We need to relearn our lessons. We also need to be unwavering uh, and not lose our nerve when uh, when Vladimir Putin uses Cold War tactics and threatens uh, nuclear escalation. He's not a madman. He's not suicidal. This is just a tool he's trying to do or use to engender you know, the, the, the flight part of the fight or flight reaction.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who was most recently the Director for European Affairs on the White House's National Security Council. Prior to retiring from the U.S. Army, he served as a foreign area officer with assignments in U.S. embassies in Kiev, Ukraine, and Moscow, Russia, and for the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs as a political military affairs officer. And he's the author of the new book, Here, Right Matters, an American Story, and he has an argument at the Atlantic. America could have done much more to protect Ukraine. The powers of two deterrents were not taken, but in terms of soft power, obviously cutting Russian banks or most Russian banks off from Swift and particularly going after their sovereign wealth and their federal reserve in effect is going to be quite effective and And I'm sure, I don't think the oligarchs or the Siloviki surrounding Putin, we saw in that National Security Council meeting what's really going on there where the top uh, heads of Russian intelligence were quaking like nervous schoolboys before Putin, who was, you know, screaming at them, you know, speak plainly. I mean, it was a pathetic sight. So you realize that this is the new czar. He has absolute power. But still, when Peskov's own daughter... Is against the war, and they're what they arrested over three thousand people. And the young Russians don't buy into anything that Putin's doing, and probably now they all want to get out of the country. So, do you think that he has any inkling? And also, his forces aren't doing that well. Although he sent in, this is what I worry about. In fact, I wonder what you have to say about this, Colonel Vinman. He sent in the the conscripts mostly. Some of them are ill-equipped. They're surrendering. But he's holding back at least half of his forces. What is he doing? Is he sending in the sort of B team first, holding back the A team?
1: Yeah. Well, that's an interesting thing. I've been thinking through that uh, because you're, you're right, uh, especially folks from the eastern military district that are attacking towards Kiev. That is not a front line. Um, that is not a first kind of echelon unit. It is not the, uh, uh, very well equipped. Uh, I my understanding seems to be that there that the strategy was to grind down maybe the Ukrainian forces to probe them and to lose uh, uh, to to maybe take some casualties there. But there's also a deep wishful thinking, you know, war optimism from how uh, for how his forces were, were uh, going to fare and how the Ukrainians were going to respond. So it's probably a combination of those two. Uh, a lot of kind of top-tier units have not gone in, gone in, but there are some some top-tier units that have gone in. He's burning up his special operations forces. I mean, there there's a large number of them, but he's burning them up because those are the guys that are on the ground trying to wreak some havoc, and those are not easily replaced. They're getting crushed by the Ukrainian armed forces. Uh, well, they got, they got
0: crushed at the Antonov Air yes. Base. In-
1: they're in south of the city. Uh, there was an airborne, another airborne operation where two IL-76s packed with Russian paratroopers were knocked out. Uh, so these are these are airborne forces. These are serious. They they treat them as a separate arm of the the military, not a part of the ground force. So they're supposed to be the kind of the top tier force. Uh, there's also, um, I mean, they're they're losing. They're taking some significant casualties on forces that are uh, supposed to be performing better. But they do, and they uh, their Second Guards Army which is a top-tier element uh, that's, that's based around Moscow, has also uh, been in the fight and taken some significant loss. So it's a combination. But yes, you're right. It's, it's not their first-tier forces. I don't know if this, their, their primary uh, punch is actually going to fare that much better. They're outrunning their supply lines. They're, they're fighting on, on these cities, and they can't sustain themselves. They're leaving their supply lines vulnerable to attack. And then in those uh, protracted battles... Uh, they, they're running out of fuel, they're running out of ammunition. So unless they really st- uh, kind of slow down this operation and secure cities along the way and hold more ground, which they may not have even the force structure to do, uh, it's not looking very good. But they could still rain uh, some serious punishment on the Ukrainian forces. They're, they have most of their air power intact. They have all their uh, long-range fires intact. Because um, they're they're far enough back from the the, the battle, and uh, this is going to be this could be a punishing attack on on the cities and the population.
0: But in terms of the Ukrainian forces, obviously a lot of them were deployed facing the line of control in the Donbass. Are they able to move back and redeploy? Because there's conflicting reports about Kharkiv being taken by the Russians and. Now we're told that, no, the Ukrainians have counterattacked. What seems obvious to me, Colonel Venman, is that had NATO and the United States supplied Ukraine with more weapons sooner, when they obviously made the terrible mistake of thinking we don't want to upset Putin, and now the Ukrainians would be doing, they're doing so incredibly well with limited supplies, imagine how they'd be doing if they were properly supplied
1: that's exactly right this is the part this is the part that I was talking about we lost our nerve we deterred ourselves on the prospect that uh, uh, we didn't want to provoke Vladimir Putin this is not but this shouldn't be uh, hung simply on you know the Biden administration the Biden administration was looking at the scenario through the solar straw of a decade or two decades of, of really failed policy with regards to Russia this idea that we there was more to accomplish with Russia this idea that um we should we should prioritize Russia over places uh, like Ukraine, where there may be less things to do, but a much, much higher chance of actually accomplishing them. And then also succumbing to fear of a, Russia, a belligerent Russia. Uh, it t- may be that Russia is a paper tiger, and uh, we overestimated their capability. They still have a very p- powerful nuclear arsenal, but we shouldn't have been as fearful. And this is why uh, for months, for months, I've been saying we should have done more. We should have provided them we shouldn't have made them a prickly porcupine and an unpalatable for russian armed forces they should have gotten a lot more uh short-range anti-tank capabilities long-range or uh, medium-range anti-tank capabilities in terms of air defense they, we've gave we've uh through our allies uh transferred some stingers but they need more considerably more because that's where russia has the, the the majority of their power is in air and long-range fires and medium-range air defense which are critical those are the ones where Russian bombers that fly above range of Stingers need to be vulnerable, and uh, I mean unmanned aerial vehicles. There's all sorts of stuff that they, they should should been getting along the way to really drive Russian calculus, and that would have be uh, would be having effects right now. Instead, the the Ukrainians are literally on their own on the ground fighting this with limited supplies and really vastly outperforming the assessments of Western analysts. And the Russians are underperforming, and now we're trying to rush some additional equipment into the fight. But this, if if and when the Ukrainians pull this out, it's not a done deal. It'll be on their own, on their own merits. They'll be, they'll have been the ones that have uh, pushed back the most belligerent authoritarian power in the world, and uh, they'll have done it on their own, and they'll be the heroes of all, democ- uh, all uh, democracies.
0: But but the stuff that's being sent in, and now the Germans who originally wouldn't let these old howitzers come from the Baltic states, uh, now they've changed their mind. They're sending equipment in. So is the U.S. How do you get that equipment into that country under this in the midst of a war?
1: Yep. Uh, it obviously
0: <laughs> comes in from the west. Does yep. it? Re- will it get to the where it's needed?
1: It, it will. It's it's actually not that hard uh, because one of the things we're we're seeing is that the Russians are really quite poor at targeting, especially targeting deep. Uh, into uh, Western Ukraine, so flying the stuff in into uh, it's probably not a wise idea to try to fly it into um, Ukraine itself, but flying it into Poland, flying into Romania, and then transporting it by ground uh, across the border. I mean, th- these this equipment could be there in in hours, in a day, on the ground, and basically moving into positions where it's needed. the The trick, of course, is going to be. Securing it as it moves forward to places like Kiev, uh, Kherson, um, Odessa, Mikolajiv, the the places in the south, uh, and then um, and the capital, and then the east and Kharkiv. Uh, Those folks are going to start running out of equipment. But what's this is a part of another part of the story is that the the Russians have not achieved air dominance. It's still contested air, so you can get those things there. You just need to be very kind of careful. And it might not be it might be like small secured convoys that are not easily detectable to get them to move them up to where they need to go um, in, in the east port in the eastern portion of the country. It's doable. The Ukrainians are more than capable of getting it to where they need to go uh, if they execute this as carefully as they've done their operations over the past three days.
0: So this meeting, this is supposed to take place between, I guess, Zelensky and the Russians negotiating on the Belarus border assuming that they don't use the this is a roost to kill Zelensky or put him on trial, what kind of deal could be struck? Because the Russians have already, as far as I can tell, they've got a land bridge now from Crimea into Ukraine, do they not? There's certain advances that they've made. We don't know about Kharkiv or not where that stands, but in general, what would Zelensky be giving up in order to get peace?
1: Uh, that's an interesting question. Right? You know, I've been thinking about how this uh, how this war comes to an end. Um, I think Vladimir Putin needs to be concerned that if this continues, he does not end up, he that he, he ends up in a worse ca- uh, situation than he was when, when it started. Because the Ukrainians are fu- fully justified and uh, likely capable of regaining their lost uh, uh, t- territories. Lugansk and Donetsk. Uh, as this war grinds down, and those uh, those forces that the Russians have built up for a very very quick operation, not a sustained operation, but a quick operation that's supposed to last days and weeks, as they get ground down, the Ukrainians have the p- potential to counterattack and resecure Luhansk and Donetsk and establish their international boundary on the east. That is still rather far fetched, but you can you could kind of see the path there now. It's not. It's not completely outlandish to, to see a, a solution like that. And mo- most importantly, there's a potential that they might even uh, be able to to resecure Crimea, which has now been declared an, a next ter- territory of Russia. It's, it's unlikely the Russians would defend it. They have overwhelming naval superiority and, and, and really could uh, significantly disrupt ca- attacks from the, from the sea, from the air. And they have uh, sufficient units in Crimea, but these things are now under threat, which is which is hard to imagine that Ukrainians have performed so well that maybe maybe there's a path here. But we should not forget this is a long road uh, road ahead. Uh, in fact, the Russians have probably 60, 50 to sixty percent of their forces still out of this fight, and uh, Ukraine has been putting up a valiant valiant uh, defense, but they're they're starting to run low on supplies. Uh, they probably are starting to run low on those uh, very capable anti- anti-tank systems. And um, they you know before before we switch to kind of an offensive operation, they still need to hold out and be successful in the defense. So that's you know on, that's on the ground uh, from a kind of a larger strategic picture on resolution, there's a poss- possibility for status quo anti basically, you go back to where you are, uh, before the you know the day before this war started, uh, but you don't the Ukrainians no longer fear a Russian attack because that was always looming. Now they don't have to fear fear it because they know that what they're dealing with, they know they could defend. But uh, Russia still holds uh, controls uh, territory uh, in these two regions and you just go back to, to uh, the conditions before and then international community comes in uh, and can, uh, resupplies Ukraine. Uh, with all the weapons that they need, and really funds a massive, massive reconstruction effort, one that doesn't just rebuild, but helps uh, propel Ukraine into the community of Western nations. That's where we need to, we need we need the power and the strength of the Ukrainian people and the uh, and their will to bolster beleaguered democracies around the world. I mean they've they've shown a, a, a they've shown a path really for uh, for all of us, and we need to make sure that they. They realize their aspirations for the West,
0: so just in closing, uh, Colonel Benman, the other side of the coin would be that Putin obviously wants to subjugate Ukraine, he says to <laughs> denazify for God's yep. sake, and uh, you 've got a Jewish president. How much could he end up succeeding in his wish to make Ukraine no longer a viable state, in other words, cut them off in Mariupol. And cut them off on the on the Black Sea, so they'd be sort of landlocked rump state. Is there is there still a possibility of that?
1: Nope, not really, because right now uh, we're in this very very acute phase, and uh, we're still reluctant partners, even though the Ukrainians are doing all the fighting. But as as this winds down, uh, I it would be a travesty, and I find it hard to imagine, based on the will shown by the West, that the Ukrainians are not provisioned. With uh, m- much more capable systems, including harpoons, to threaten Russia's embargo. Um, I uh, Mariupol is under threat, but the Russians have taken zero cities. Uh, and Ukraine uh, and Mariupol, at least from the eastern side, has is dug in. So uh, that's not going to be an easy fight. They might be attacked from the west now, uh, or they're certainly being attacked from the west. But they might hold uh, under siege. I think. Um, the chances of, of uh, Vladimir Putin uh, achieving his objectives as he initially envisioned them are zero, because initially he wanted a, uh, a, a demilitarized, pacified state. That's not going to happen. Even if he were to t- achieve military success now, this late in the game, he'd have suffered massive, massive losses. Uh, something that, you know, we like the Russians haven't experienced we're, we're probably approaching, so they, it's not near, near how many losses they sustained in, in like Afghanistan yet. But we're probably not necessarily too far away. And that was a, a, a decades-long uh, conflict. You know, if this goes on, they're going to su- sustain those kinds of losses. And those contributed to the collapse of the Soviet Union. But uh, he's going to have to potentially occupy because the Ukrainian people will not take a puppet government. So already his uh, smash and grab operation will have failed. And he's going to be exposing himself to more significant um, casualties all along the way. But there's there that's maybe the his best case scenario. I think the everything else from there uh, is is worse than that. And the Russian people are not going to look favorably on this. And this nuclear saber rattling is also not going to pay off.
0: Well. It better not. I mean, at the end of the day, he is threatening NATO with nuclear weapons. I mean, it's naked. Yeah. So, but
1: it's the same thing that we've experienced. Our our predecessors for generations experienced this kind of uh, saber rattling, and they were unflinching. They uh, held they they held their nerve to protect their vital national security interests. We have to remember that Putin is not suicidal. He's not a madman, nor is his regime. Uh, so they're not going to—they're not going to move towards a, a mutually assured destruction.
0: Well, on that note of <laughs> not exactly encouraging note, but uh, I thank you so much for joining us here today, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman.
1: Thank you. Good talking and to you again,
0: Likewise. And again, I've been speaking with Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who was most recently the Director for European Affairs on the White House's National Security Council. Prior to retiring from the U.S. Army, he served as a foreign area officer with assignments in U.S. embassies in Kiev, Ukraine, and Moscow, Russia, and for the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff as a political military affairs officer. And he's the author of the new book, Here, Right Matters, An American Story. And he has an article at The Atlantic, America could have done much more to protect Ukraine. The paths to deterrence were not taken. We're going to take a brief station break and looking into how the fact that Russia has gone to full nuclear alert makes it clear, as Biden has reiterated, that the U.S. does not want to go to war with Russia over Ukraine, but at the same time, the U.S. does not want Russia to go unpunished. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Keith Darden, who's a professor in the School of International Service at American University, where his research focuses on nationalism, state building, and the politics of Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. And his forthcoming book is Resisting Occupation in Eurasia. Welcome to Background Briefing, Keith Darden.
2: Thanks, Ian. It's a pleasure to join you again.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Keith. And I'd resisting occupation is that's the story of the moment isn't it how the incredible resistance that the Ukrainians are putting up particularly when they were so ill-equipped compared to the Russians so outnumbered and outmatched with military equipment and you know obviously the U.S. should have done and NATO should have done and could have done a lot more to help them in terms of arming themselves and to defend their country but Our leaders and NATO's leaders, obviously it operates on consensus, and particularly the EU, didn't want to upset Putin. And look where we have now. So is this whole situation in Ukraine entirely dependent upon the bravery of the Ukrainians? I mean, they are fundamentally fighting for democracy. And here at home, we are having our democracy slip through our fingers. So I think it's pretty shameful what's happening here compared to what the Ukrainians are standing up for?
2: It's partly dependent on the resilience of the Ukrainians and their willingness to fight, which seems to be quite substantial. Uh, But it also depends somewhat on the Russians and their willingness to fight, uh, which seems somewhat less substantial, to be perfectly honest. I think a lot of elites in Moscow, even at the upper echelons uh, of the administration, were pretty shocked by this decision. Uh, did not agree with this decision, uh, and if it ends up being something where um, it's actually quite punishing for Ukraine, uh, that popularity is going to diminish even further in Russia. And so there were actually reports of uh, Russian soldiers really not uh, fighting in earnest, so personnel not leaving their APCs, their armored personnel carriers, uh to engage in, in direct battle. You know, these are two countries that have a lot of close ties. Uh this is not uh this is not a kind of Serb versus Croat kind of hatred like we saw in the Balkans. Uh and you know I'm not I'm not sure that the, the Russian's heart is really in it. Putin's heart is in it. Uh but Putin's
0: not on the battlefield. So could it backfire on him? I mean I was just speaking earlier on the program with uh, Colonel Vindman, and he's concerned that the report said Zelensky's going to meet with Russians on the negotiators on the Belarus border. And he said, you know, there's still an outside chance that the Russians could kill and capture him. That would be pretty extreme. But the fact that if you take the negotiating offers at their face value, that means, I guess, that Putin's... What, realising that it's not going so well? I mean, he's, does he recognise the backlash that's happening, not just against his money and his cronies' money, but what you just told us about military morale? He sent in his B team, you know, the younger conscripts, and he's holding back his A team, uh, about 50% at least of his military haven't, haven't gone into Ukraine yet. But Colonel Vindman said he suffered some serious casualties, particularly amongst the Spesnas. The special forces, uh, they've suffered huge casualties. And uh, yes. that's got to be getting uh, at least the military's attention. I don't know whether it's getting Putin's attention.
2: Yes. There are reports, uh, I don't know whether Colonel Binman mentioned this, but there are reports that there's pushback among uh, Spetsnaz leadership, uh, that they they may have been given the order to take Kiev by Monday. Uh, and that they recognize that uh, that type of urban warfare would be extremely costly to their highly trained forces. Uh, and that, you know, that's just not something that um, they're really ready to do. So, you know, I think partly we're seeing negotiations now, and I do think they're honest and in earnest. Uh, I don't think that I think it would be shocking and unlikely if if Zelensky were simply struck at the border uh, when he was invited for negotiations. Um, And you would certainly have another leader of Ukraine emerge. Uh, So killing Zelensky does not solve the Russians' problem in this case. Uh, I think part of the problem is that the war is going poorly for the Ukrainians and the Russians. So, you know, within 72 hours of the onset of the conflict, you have Russian forces fighting inside the city limits of Kiev, the capital city. And Kyiv is the most defended fortress in all of Ukraine. So there's reason on the Ukrainian side to seek a settlement in a war that they seem to have thought that they could avoid. So I think there was a little bit of uh, uh, surprise on the Ukrainian side uh, that Russia actually pulled a, a full-scale invasion. Uh, and so, but yes, on the Russian side, it's not going as well as, as their optimistic scenarios would have hoped. And so, you know, now we're reaching that moment where the optimism on both sides that we saw in January, uh, both the Russians thinking that, you know, Ukraine would fold just like Afghanistan and you'd see defection of troops and cities all, you know, and it would crumble within days. Uh, And on the Ukrainian side, the sense that Russia wouldn't dare uh, actually invade um, so that they didn't have to pursue some kind of unfavorable settlement to themselves in advance. That optimism is now crushed. Uh, And so now there may be some kind of deal space. In other words, some kind of agreement that could be reached uh, that would give the Russians a way out uh, and preserve Ukrainian sovereignty. Uh, So that's 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 I think that's truly on the table. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Keith Darden, a professor in the School of International Service at American University, where his research focuses on nationalism, state building, and the politics of Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. And his forthcoming book is Resisting Occupation in Eurasia. Well, it's pretty obvious that not only did the Western NATO make a mistake in not arming the Ukrainians better so they could defend themselves, because they, were, they didn't want to upset Putin. And all along, it's pretty clear that Putin wanted to crush Ukraine and turn it into a, a kind of pet like uh, Belarus has become. But on the other side, of course, Zelensky, he, he mustn't have been listening to Biden, because Biden laid it all out. Everything that Biden told the American people in the world, what Putin was up to, turned out to be absolutely accurate. And presumably, uh, they kept telling Zelensky that the Russians are going to attack you and they're going to take Kyiv and Zelensky was seemed to be more concerned about not sowing panic as opposed to preparing the defenses and of course by putting most of their forces up against the Russians in the east on the line of control in the Donbas they were less prepared to defend Kyiv and Kharkiv but still at this point it's extraordinary how the Ukrainians have managed to do as much defense as they've been able to muster. It's it's pretty impressive. And again, it just feels to me like we should take this lesson that how people are fighting so hard for democracy. They've They've had democracy and the rule of law, which the Russians don't have. I mean, their association with democracy is chaos and economic collapse. But the Ukrainians have had it, they want it, and they're fighting for it. And again, here at home, we're watching Trump's GOP conduct so much voter suppression and vote rigging that they could steal the next two elections. And as far as I can tell, h- half the country's asleep, or maybe more of it is asleep, not recognizing how frail our own democracy is at home. I may be a little off topic here. Well, but- I think we have to be careful.
2: Uh, in reading back into the past what could have been done differently Uh, because Russia did invade and partly they invaded because of military cooperation between uh, Ukraine and the West. So it's highly likely that if our military engagement with Ukraine had been stepped up a notch earlier, we would have seen a Russian invasion earlier. So, uh, I think the Russians actually were willing to avoid this invasion. Uh, and, but they would have, uh, accepted only the implementation of the, of the Minsk agreement, Minsk II, uh, which was, you know, ratified in a UN security council resolution. There are reasons to think that, uh, Minsk, which the Ukrainians found to be uh, unacceptable, and Washington never really encouraged the implementation of either. Uh, That if that agreement had been put into place, which would have meant changing the Ukrainian constitution, essentially giving uh, each region of Ukraine a veto over Ukrainian foreign policy orientation, that that would have been uh, acceptable to the Russians, right? That this would have been a kind of appeasement that might have worked. Uh, I think that if we had really ramped up our military engagement with Ukraine earlier, I just think we would have seen a Russian invasion in 2016, 2017, uh, along the lines of what we're seeing today. And in fact, the Ukrainians would have been far less prepared uh, to resist then than they are now. They have actually invested a great deal of their own resources In their military. Right now, much of their air defense system, for example, is of their own production and their own design. Uh, And so Ukraine is no slouch uh, in military affairs. The problem is that, you know, Russia is much more substantial. Uh, Ukrainian forces are not particularly mobile. So even if Zelensky, for example, had wanted to relocate on short notice um, some of the units, the elite units that are currently in the Donbass, they're not very mobile, uh, those units, uh, and so uh, they're kind of dug in. It's kind of France versus Germany, you know, uh, on the eve of the Second World War. You know, Ukrainians kind of have a Maginot line uh, right there on the Donbass, uh, and, and the Russians have, you know, the specialty of the Russian military um, is mobile armor. Uh, and so they, they are able to concentrate their forces on virtually any border of Ukraine, But Ukraine is not able to move its forces to any border of Ukraine, uh, which makes their situation particularly difficult. And once it became clear that Russia had made the decision to invade, uh, we've been pouring weapons into Ukraine uh, in a way that would allow them uh, to counteract that Russian armor, uh, reduce its mobility uh, and reduce its effectiveness for as long as possible.
0: So if Ukraine had taken I Minsk mean, 2 which was politically suicidal for any Ukrainian leader because it would give Russia veto power and essentially they'd achieve politically what they're now trying to achieve militarily which is to neuter this country. So at this point in these negotiations what does Ukraine have to give up and you know what will Putin accept but obviously he's not going to necessarily end up with what he calls a demilitarized and denazified country. So what kind of outcome if these talks go ahead in earnest?
2: Yeah. And you know, I just want to say that the language of denazification is not just ridiculous, but just offensive in this case, particularly since Zelensky's own family is Jewish and he fought you know, his his family fought the fought the Nazis all the way back to Berlin. So I, you know, and that's clearly that framing of the Ukrainian government uh, is one of the more ridiculous aspects of, of of Russian propaganda. But I, you know, I would say that Minsk, too, is not the same thing as what would result from a Russian invasion. A Russian invasion is going to be complete regime change uh, in in Kiev, probably, you know, uh, the imprisonment or murder of every member of every government of Ukraine post-2014, right? Uh, it's going to lead to a radical purge uh, at all levels of society uh, of um, more pro-Ukrainian, uh, sort of non belarusian style elites. Uh, and it's going to lead to a, a, a very repressive regime for a, for a significant period of time. That's not what Minsk would have done. Minsk would have not necessarily neutered Ukraine, but it would have neutralized Ukraine so that, you know, under Minsk, Lviv, right, the, the western parts of Ukraine, which are very pro-NATO and anti-Russian, would also have had a veto over Ukrainian foreign policy. So uh, the, the Ukraine that will result from a successful Russian invasion is going to look a lot more like Belarus on steroids, whereas Minsk had a risk of looking a little bit more like Bosnia in the sense of uh, almost a confederalized, very fragmented Ukraine that uh, could not have formed an alliance with NATO, but also could not have essentially been a platform for Russia uh, in the way that the Belarusians have become. So it's, and I think that what could be achieved in these negotiations is something like a, a neutral Ukraine Uh, But a neutral Ukraine uh, that, uh, you know, has no risk, essentially, uh, of being directly controlled from Moscow. Uh, And so that that might be a good outcome for us, uh, as opposed to uh, meaning the West and those advocates of democracy, because, you know, I personally, uh, you know, don't want to see democracy snuffed out in Ukraine. And I think that Russia has the military capability not only to snuff out democracy, but to snuff out a lot of the Ukrainians that I care about. And so if that could be avoided by some sort of settlement now, uh, I, I think that's certainly uh, worth worth a chance. And it it is conceivable. It's, again, all the diplomacy on this has been a kind of narrow window. Uh, but sometimes force and the use of force creates clarity on both sides that allows for uh, a more realism, a realism that allows a diplomatic process to, to move forward.
0: Well, Keith Darden, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Keith Darden, who's a professor in the School of International Service at American University, where his research focuses on nationalism, state building, and the politics of Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. And his forthcoming book is Resisting Occupation, in Eurasia. we we'll can take a brief station break. We're back looking into dissent amongst Russia's elites and how the Tsar and the Kremlin's brutal miscalculation could be the beginning of the end for Putin. And joining us now is Charles Kupchan, who's the Director of European Affairs on the National Security Council during the Clinton administration. He's now a Professor of International Affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and spent the last three years of the Obama administration as Special Assistant to President Obama for National Security, a Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's the author of Power in Transition, The Peaceful Change of International Order and How Enemies Become Friends, The Source of Stable Peace. And his latest book is Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World. Welcome to Background Briefing, Charles Kupchin.
3: Good to be back with you, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Charles. And what do you make of the uh, meeting that's apparently going to take place on the Belarus border between Ukraine's President Zelensky and a delegation from Russia? I'm not sure who the Russians are. Uh, I just spoke earlier on the program with Colonel Vindman, he's a little concerned that the Russians don't assassinate Zelensky, but assuming that this is a serious and earnest proposal, what could come of this? And I guess the more important question is, why is it happening? Is is this because it's just not going that well for Putin as he expected?
3: Well, let's wait, wait and see what happens. This is breaking news. We don't yet know what's going to transpire. But assuming that there will be a meeting between the Ukrainians and the Russians. I think it's the, the product of a couple of things. One is that the initial assault on Ukraine has not gone as well as Russia has expected. The Ukrainians are pushing back tenaciously. The Russians have not yet been able to take over the, the major cities that they have uh, focused on, including Kyiv. And I also think that what we're seeing here is a combination of enormous international condemnation of Russia, huge sanctions that are being by the hour escalated, including going after Russian banks and taking them off the SWIFT system, the system that that allows communication among banks. Now there's talk. Of freezing assets of the Russian Central Bank. The Russians, uh, I think, are facing a, a Ukrainian population that is much more angry than they expected. I think Putin really believed, as he said in his speeches over the last few weeks, that behind every Ukrainian, there was a wannabe Russian. And he miscalculated. What he's looking at is a country of 44 million seething Ukrainians ready to take up arms, and that may explain why he's now beginning to say, hey, maybe it's time to talk to the Ukrainians.
0: Well, it's extraordinary, the the bravery of the Ukrainians. They're so overmatched, but it does seem that, at least we know, that only half of Russia's forces have been deployed into Ukraine and it seems like maybe they've put their B team in of young conscripts and their A team is still waiting. So militarily, the Russians could probably do more. But my understanding is that, in fact, Colonel Vindman was telling us earlier in the program that even the Spesnats, the top of the line Russian forces, have suffered serious casualties. And I think this message must be getting through to Putin that things aren't going as well as they planned.
3: I would be reluctant to assess this pause or what looks like a pause as a sign that Russia can't achieve its military objectives. You know, there is no match between the Russian military and the Ukrainian military. If Putin wants to to go into Ukraine and take major cities in the East and topple the government, I think he can probably get away with it. That having been said, the resistance of the Ukrainian military, and it's not just the military, it's average citizens has been remarkable. It's it's inspirational. Secondly, I think that the, the Russian population is, uh, you know, that, that Putin, may have overreached here. And we're seeing protests across Russia. I've been receiving emails and communications from my colleagues inside Russia who never thought that Putin would do this. They all thought this was a bout of coercive diplomacy. They're now shocked and devastated. And as a consequence of this, it could be that Putin is saying, you know what, I leaped into the dark and it's not going so well. Uh, let's see what comes of this offer to have a conversation on the border of Belarus. But I'm I'm not terribly optimistic. Putin seems to be in the bunker. He seems to have doubled down if he wants to topple the regime in Kiev. Regrettably, I think he will be able to achieve it. So right now we are in a very murky situation.
0: Well, it's worse than that, though, surely, Charles Coughlin, because Putin has put the Russian uh, nuclear systems on full alert. I mean, there's obviously a difference between pointing a gun at somebody and pulling the trigger, but still, pointing a gun at somebody is still very, very hostile.
3: Well, there, you know, there are two issues here. One is that Russia is po- is pointing a gun at Ukraine's head and saying capitulate, and the Ukrainians. God bless them, are saying, out of my face. And I'm not sure that, that Putin expected that. And as I said, I think he fundamentally misread the situation. I think he is isolated. He's not getting good advice. He really did believe that there is a Nazi regime in Kiev supported by the United States and, in Western, and its Western allies and he wanted to liberate ukraine from this government and return ukrainians to the motherland that's la la land that's that's not where the people of ukraine are they're they're now building molotov cocktails looking to arm themselves ready to fight to the to the 11th hour and and i also think that that You know, there is there is the prospect of spillover. My best guess is that whatever transpires in Ukraine, this is a war that will be contained to Ukraine. But the United States, the Poles, the Baltics, they are rearming Ukraine. Those arms are coming in most likely through Poland. I don't I don't know exactly where they're they're coming in. There are four NATO countries that have borders with Ukraine, Poland, Romania, Slovakia, Hungary. It's conceivable to me that if this war continues, Putin will seek to interdict the influx of arms from NATO countries. Might he take a shot at Poland? Might he go after the Baltics in a reckless way resembling his reckless attack on Ukraine, maybe. So, yeah, this this is a war that could potentially escalate.
0: Well, when I mentioned uh, pointing a gun at you, it's just as hostile as you know, short of pulling the trigger, it's still a hostile act. It's not just that he's pointing a gun at the Ukrainians; he's pointing his nuclear weapons at the U.S. and NATO. So he's on full alert. And I'm not thoroughly convinced that the Krokus and Kasbar systems that the Soviets had are much more robust and reliable than they under the Russian leadership. At the bottom line is, in geopolitics, we've never had the combination of national security and organized crime, nuclear weapons and the mafia. And you've got a crime boss running this country. And you've got a, a wannabe crime boss in this country who could come back in 2024. And he's the leader of the GOP. And he's cheering on Putin for God's sake. I mean, this is a pretty
3: surreal situation. Yes, surreal (laughs) understates the situation, Ian. You know, we uh, we 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 did not see this coming. Uh, I think you're right to say that this transcends the risks that existed during the Cold War, in part because, you know, some some folks assess Putin. To be unstable. Uh, I've, I've had contact with individuals who have met Putin in the last six months and they say he's changed that, that he is much more emotional, much more unpredictable. I believe that the structure of nuclear deterrence still holds. Unlike some countries, for example, North Korea, Russia still has an institutional structure. It has checks on the potential use of nuclear weapons. I do not think that we are at the cusp of some kind of cataclysmic situation. That having been said, Putin has jumped into the dark, right? I mean, if we look back over the last 10 years or so, we see an aggressive Putin, a paranoid Putin, a coercive Putin, but small bites, South Ossetia and Abkhazia in Georgia, Crimea and Donbass in Ukraine, going in to Syria, going into Libya, going into Nagorno-Karabakh. But these were generally low cost, low risk efforts to disrupt the international system. He's now doubling down, this is high risk, High cost, and we need to take that that quite seriously. But the fundamental logic of nuclear deterrence still applies. Uh, but I, you know, I do think that that this is a dangerous moment. It would not surprise me, Ian, if this is the beginning of the end of Putin. I, you know, have had contact with colleagues in Russia over the last few days. They are devastated and worried they uh, are not supportive of this war. Let's see where this moment goes.
0: Well, just in the last minute, to give you a flavor, or give the audience a flavor of the surreal nature of Russians and Ukrainians fighting each other when they're so close in so many ways, a Russian tank broke down on the road outside of Kyiv and a Ukrainian civilian driving by in his car pulled over and said to the the Russians in the tank. What's the problem? You're broken down? And uh, they said, yeah. And he said, well, I'll give you a tow. And the Russian crew all laughed. And he says, yeah, I'll tow you all the way back to Russia. So <clears throat> there you have it. I mean, at the end of the day, it seems like that the Russian people, as you mentioned and your colleagues, they're not buying this, at least the educated ones and the, particularly the young. Peskov's own daughter is against the war. So... Could that be what you're suggesting, the unraveling and perhaps the end of Putin?
3: it's It's conceivable. I mean anything could unfold in the days and the weeks ahead. But I do think that what we're witnessing here is a fundamental miscalculation in two respects. One, he thought that he could go into to Ukraine, that he could use, shock and awe and that the Ukrainian army would crumble. That's not been the case. The Ukrainian army is pushing back and they are supported by the lion's share of Ukrainian citizens. So even if he ends up being able to go into Kiev and to topple the government, he will be attempting to occupy and suppress a country that is mad as hell. Secondly, I think many many Russians are not supportive of this war. Ukraine is a country with which Russia has had long-term ties, especially in eastern Ukraine. Western Ukraine has been Ukrainian speaking and more oriented toward Europe for uh, most of its history, but yes, there there are there are strong ties between Eastern Ukraine and, and Russia, but that cuts both ways, right? Putin has said, well, this is my justification for going in to, to save uh, uh, Russian speakers, ethnic Russians, people who want to be part of Russia. But at the same time, you're seeing in 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 Ukraine is this, this sense of no, we don't want to be under your thumb. We want to be an independent nation. We after the end of the Soviet Union, have charted our own course. Uh, And and I think Russians see this as, no, this is not a justification for going in and occupying Ukraine and ruling over our uh, brethren in a coercive way. This is not on. This is immoral. This is unjustified. So yes, Ian, I do think this could be the end of the Putin regime.
0: Well, Charles Kupchan, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
3: It's been my pleasure.
0: And again, I've been mean speaking with Charles Kupchen who was Director of European Affairs on the National Security Council during the Clinton administration. He's now a Professor of International Affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and spent the last three years of the Obama administration as Special Assistant to President Obama for National Security, a Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's the author of Power in Transition, The Peaceful Change of International Order and How Enemies Become Friends, The Sources of Stable Peace. And his latest book is Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now.